Hello, theater lovers. It's Bryn. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about George and Melissa and the Dragon by Bex Gobrin. It's not quite spooky, but since 2020 has been scary enough for a million Halloweens, I thought that this Halloween, I'd go the more magical slash fantasy route. I think you'll really enjoy it. But first, this week's announcements. First Kiss Theater is having a festival this weekend that they have called the Theater is Dead Festival. Multiple pieces will be streamed for free on both Saturday and Sunday. Link for tickets are in the bio of their Instagram page, which is at First Kiss Theater. That's at First Kiss Theater, theater spelled R-E. The Atlantic Theater is having a reunion reading of Dominique Morisot's Skeleton Crew, streaming tonight and tomorrow. Reservations are required, but are free. There is a suggested donation of $25, but it is, as said, optional. You can make your reservation on the Atlantic Theater Company's website. Club Thumb is advertising a solo show called Karen, I Said, written and performed by Eliza Bent and directed by Tara Ahmadinejad, who is a fantastic director I've worked with before. Show dates are October 28th through November 2nd. Tickets are between $5 and $30. Reserve yours through the link in Eliza Bent's Instagram bio. Her handle is at getbentobox. That is at G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O-B-O-X. The Barrow Group is doing their Women in Theater Festival, presented by Fab Women, online this year. The festival takes place October 24th and 25th at 6.30 p.m. EST. You can reserve a ticket on barrowgroup.org through their calendar, or join their Facebook Live on their Facebook page at 6.30 p.m. on either date. Sarah Lawrence College is doing yet another online performance of a new student work, This piece is called Flush, A Play With Music by Hallie Riddick. It is directed by my good friend Amanda Card. The performances are tonight at 8 p.m. EST and October 24th at 11 a.m. EST. You can reserve your tickets through the link in the Instagram bio of Sarah Lawrence College's theater department, which is at SLC Theater Official, and that's theater spelled with an R-E. Ensemble Studio Theater is presenting a new play by Youngblood member Dan Giles called Mike Pence Sex Dream. You can catch the performance tonight and tomorrow through live stream or watch a recording that will be available from the 26th to November 1st. The event is free but requires a reservation. You can reserve your tickets at estnyc.org. And now, a little self-plug. Looking for something a little spooky this Halloween season? Check out Soundscape Theater's Sound Scare Festival. You can listen to all four audio plays through their Instagram page for free. Each piece is no longer than 10 minutes. The Instagram handle is at Soundscape Theater. That's at Soundscape Theater, theater spelled E-R. My play is called Pumpkin Dreams and is directed by previous podcast guest Anne-Karina Backen. 
The plays will be released periodically throughout next week. Finally, I just wanted to make it known that the podcast will be off next week for Halloween. I will be taking the time to do virtual games and hangouts with my loved ones. This has been a hard year, and I think we could all benefit from taking a break to just goof off, do some spooky stuff, and have a good time with the people we love. And now, let's dive into George and Melissa and the Dragon by Bex Gobrin. Bex Gobrin is a California-born playwright. Her plays include 50 words said to or about me that have somehow affected my life in no particular order, unless, of course, it's particular, 2016 Cunnilingus Curated Selection, Dresser Falls on Woman, 2016 Sadie Hawkins Theatre Company Reading Series Selection, Zana, 2018 Inviolet Theatre Company Reading Series Selection, Springful, 2017 Little Black Dress Inks on Stage Festival Finalist, 2018 Inviolet Theatre Company Reading Series Selection, George and Melissa and the Dragon at Rise Reading Series Selection 2019, and Land, Apartment Literary Theatre 2020. Her essays have been featured on fatherly.com and Reductress, and her short stories include S Only, 2015 Brio Literary Magazine. She graduated magna cum laude from NYU Tisch School of the Arts with a BFA in Dramatic Writing. She currently lives in Pittsburgh. Shout out to my hometown of Pittsburgh. I hope Bex is enjoying the wonderful theater scene there. Now, on to George and Melissa and the Dragon. Here is a short summary of the play from New Play Exchange. A retelling of St. George and the Dragon, but everything's a little more queer. George, the greatest warrior of her time and an amputee, is the sole survivor of the latest dragon attack on the kingdom. After the complete destruction of her army and the death of the crown prince, George embraces pacifism. The queen, the new crown princess, Melissa, Apothecary Harriet, and the king all try to come up with new ways to defeat the dragon, but everything leads them back to George. Given their recent engagement, Melissa thinks she can convince George to fight again, but George is determined to show the dragon love, not violence. At their most desperate, martyrdom comes to mind. But who will sacrifice herself? And why should she have to? This play tackles themes of sacrifice, forgiveness, and love through a queer feminine lens, rejecting the patriarchal nature of the original George and the Dragon story by making George a queer woman and a newfound pacifist, as well as an amputee. All right, here's the trigger warning section. Death, battle, suicidal ideation, and disease mentions. If any of that sounds like too much for you right now, I suggest skipping to the next episode if applicable. Alrighty then. Speaking of the source material, what is the original story of St. George and the Dragon? Well, yeah, first off, it is. It's St. George. Yeah, this story is based in Christianity. The most well-known version of this story was written in the 1260s and is called The Golden Legend. In it, George is passing through the town of Silene in Libya. Silene had been held hostage by a poison-spewing dragon for a very long time. The townspeople had sacrificed many sheep to it, and when sheep ran out, they began to sacrifice people, particularly 
youths in a lottery system. Eventually, the lot fell on the king's daughter. Isn't that always the way? The king offered all his money to the townspeople in exchange for his daughter's life, but they refused. The princess went to the dragon in what was to be her wedding dress, prepared to die. This, of course, is when George happened upon the town. The princess told George to run away before the dragon arrived, but George insisted upon staying with her. When the dragon arrived, George made the sign of the cross and charged it. He wounded the beast and then subdued it with the princess's girdle, interestingly enough. The dragon then followed the princess around like a dog. Who knows why or how any of this works, but that's what supposedly happened. George then took the dragon back into the town and agreed to kill it if the king and his subjects converted to Christianity. They agreed, and George beheaded the dragon. What a story. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I personally kind of hate that St. George basically holds the town hostage with their fear of the dragon unless they convert to his religion, because, yikes. But it is otherwise a normal vaguely dull folktale with undertones of patriarchal ideals that were the basis of society in the time it was written. In my opinion, this makes it the perfect kind of story to revamp and retell with modern ideas. And it seems Bex Gobrin agrees. Of course, the Christian story is not the only version. St. George exists as a divine adjacent figure in Islam as well as in Greek and Latin legend. I'm sure you Greek mythology nerds out there, like myself, noticed some similarities to that story about Andromeda? You know what I'm talking about. It's agreed among historians that George probably did really exist in some form, but nobody knows exactly which stories are true or based in truth. We just know that he has been a figure in religion and folk stories as a soldier, saint, and protective figure for a very long time. How interesting, then, to make this extremely masculine figure into a woman. And an amputee at that. I searched and searched to see if any of the stories pointed to the historical George being an amputee, but I found nothing except a lot of hospitals and hospital wings named after the saint, so... For now, I will assume making George an amputee was Gobrin's own idea. This act of taking a character with toxic masculine undertones and changing them into a female amputee who decides to turn away from violence says so much. And she's queer. And we haven't even gotten into the rest of the play, which gently emphasizes complete gender equality slash neutrality. And the way Bex Gobrin does this is not in an angry, in-your-face sort of way, though there's nothing wrong with that, but in this very gentle and almost loving way, similar to the temperament George takes on after her first encounter with the dragon. All right, we're veering more into the discussion territory, so I'll end the dramaturgy there. And now, a performance of a monologue from George and Melissa and the dragon by Heather McConnell as Melissa. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, a monologue from George and Melissa and the Dragon from Heather McConnell performing as Melissa. The Queen, I... Okay, but I... 
I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at me. I was mad at me. So I had taken the Belladonna because I had this plan to... Well, the way you spoke to me after I asked you to fight the dragon... It was all too much betrayal. Every choice we gave each other meant we had to betray something vital to who we were. And you are a part of me. To betray you is to betray myself. And if you don't love me, you don't love me, but I can't ever have you hate me. So I, I took the belladonna. I was going to soak my clothes in it and wash my hair with it and tie myself to a stake so I couldn't get scared and back out and then drink it all right as the dragon dove for me. Right before I would have died anyhow and I would take the dragon with me. But my mom found out. She found me, well, this was a little dramatic of me, but she found me soaking what was to be my wedding dress in the belladonna. It was hers, actually, and I've always wanted to get married in it. And she stopped me and said, that's enough. So I gave her the belladonna to return to Harriet, and that's when we decided to evacuate everyone and hope by next month a new plan could be in place. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, Heather, for your wonderful contribution to the podcast. If anyone would like to contact Heather with professional inquiries, her information can be found in the show notes of this episode. Before I get back into all the in-depth thematic stuff, I want to talk briefly about the way the dialogue in this play is written. There are very few punctuation marks, and there is often a poetry-like indent in longer statements. I interpreted these indents to mean pauses or stiltings in the character's speech, but they could be interpreted many ways, as the playwright did not leave any specifics in the playwright's notes. I found that this way of notating the dialogue gave it a very natural-seeming lilt, and I quite enjoyed reading it, as I felt I could almost hear how the playwright wanted it said out loud. Also, another quick note, the playwright specifies that the costumes in this play are supposed to be evocative of Western medieval wear. However, she also specifies that the world of the play is not necessarily our own, or any world we are aware of, that the characters should be any ethnicity, race, etc., and that George needs to be played by an actual amputee. Just wanted to mention those important details for you visual thinkers like me out there. All right, writing geek out session over. Now let's really deep dive into these characters. I believe that the meaning and true genius of this play lies in these characters, their relationships to each other, and how they are connected, or not so connected, to the original St. George story. This play has five characters, but is written for four femme actors. The actor who plays Harriet the Apothecary also plays the king in drag. Fun, right? So there will be four sections here since I believe the double casting of Harriet and the King lends itself to being one section instead of two separate ones. Let's start out with one of our title characters, George. I've already discussed a little bit how the changing of the original masculine character to a queer femme amputee is radical and sends a message. 
So let's talk a little more in depth about Gobrin's interpretation of George, instead of how this George relates to the legendary one. When we first see her, George is in a coma after a horrendous battle with the dragon. The first thing she hears when she is awakened by the queen, quite violently, I might add, is that everybody is dead. Yes, literally those words. We learn that the dragon killed the entire army, killed everyone except for George, who is stung by the dragon's poison tail, kind of like a scorpion, and paralyzed while she watched everyone around her die. Yeah, it gets a little heavy. One of these soldiers who died was George's best friend and the queen's son, the crown prince, Peter. Now that Peter is dead, it falls to George's fiance and Peter's younger sister, Melissa, to be the crown prince and eventual king. This is a lot for George to learn right upon waking from a week-long coma, and one of the first notes I wrote is that there is an immense amount of pressure placed upon the character from minute one of this play. The stakes are high, and we are made aware just how high they are by George's reaction to her returning memories and the Queen's anxiety and rage. There is no gentle ramping up for the audience, just as there is none for the awakening George. There is only a temporary peace when Melissa enters and the Queen finally leaves. And that's another important thing, the power dynamics between the Queen and George. Ordinarily, we would think, well, the Queen is basically in charge like the King because in this world they're very much equals, so the Queen has the power over George, right? Not necessarily, at least not all of the time. George is very respectful of the Queen's position, as she herself is to be Queen one day, but there is distinct tension between them. Both are very headstrong and powerful women who have their own ideas about what is right. They often clash, and the queen is not always the one who comes out on top. Despite this, they have a familial relationship. It's said early on that George has been best friends with Melissa and Peter, the queen's children, since early childhood. George is almost like one of the queen's children, and yet distinctly not. George's position as commander of the army was not earned through nepotism, though it is implied that the queen also viewed giving George this position as a way to protect Peter. George is often compared to Beowulf in the play, which is later revealed as Peter's favorite book, and it is inferred that she is an amazing warrior. Funnily enough, however, she did not lose her leg in battle. She lost it as a child from a wound that got infected. George became the most fierce warrior in the land, quote, after losing her leg, not despite it. And that's from the playwright's notes. As a disabled woman, I could cheer. I love that Gobrin put that in the playwright's notes. <laughs> Normally, now I'd want to go into Melissa, but I feel like talking about her will lead in perfectly to my final conclusions, so I'm going to talk about the Queen instead. The Queen is wonderfully complex, just like all the characters in this play. Her main driving force, however, also often called her blind spot, is her children. When Peter dies, we see how drastically this affects her and her renewed protective force over Melissa. 
But we also see just how determined, smart, and level-headed she has the potential to be. The queen doesn't deal well with bullcrap, which is shown in her colorful nicknames and cursing towards George, mostly. And she can have a crazy temper. But overall, the audience can clearly see that she's an experienced and compassionate leader. Melissa must get at least some of her big heart from her mother. In fact, as the play goes on, we see just how much alike the queen and Melissa are. Both were, or currently are, apprenticed to the king's apothecary, Harriet. Both have a vein of recklessness running through them, and both would do anything for the people they love the most. This is only emphasized near the end, but more on that when we talk about Melissa. Lastly, there's no real character in the original story to compare the queen to. She could be considered an extension of the king, but the king in the original doesn't really do much either. Speaking of the king, let's talk about him and the double-cast character, Harriet. Harriet is the apothecary to the king, i.e. the doctor for the royal family. We learn by the end of Act 1 that Harriet came from another kingdom while fleeing a plague for which she carried the idea for the cure. Her whole family, including her fiancé, died of the plague, as well as the king's older sister. In one fell swoop, the then eight-year-old king became the crown prince, while Harriet lost her family yet gained a new one in the royal family. Both characters are marked by a past full of loss, hence their reactions to the supposed impending doom of the dragon reaching their part of the kingdom, as well as the death of Peter. Harriet says to George at the close of Act 1 that she promised her that Peter would be fine, and commands her to kill the dragon almost as a sort of penance for letting Peter die. The king possesses a similar rage that is often talked about at the start of the play before an awkward and painful conversation takes place between him and his daughter, Melissa. While the queen definitely has her moments of anger and or violence, the rage that the king and Harriet possess is either talked about or shown to be more dangerous in some capacity. As with the queen, there isn't really anyone or anything to compare these characters to in the original version. There is no lottery, so the king doesn't offer money to the townspeople for his daughter's life, and that's sort of the biggest thing the king does in the original, so... Anyways, on to Melissa. Melissa is just as strong and smart as her mother, the queen, with a little more recklessness tossed in. She also has a very large heart shown through her relationship with George. Number one, they're disgustingly in love, and it is amazing. Number two, Melissa is the first person, really the only person, to come to George's defense when she refuses to fight the dragon again. Melissa spearheads the effort to find another way to save the kingdom in order to protect George's newfound morals. As time grows shorter, Melissa and George do fight about this. George feels that if she fights the dragon despite her feelings, she becomes someone she no longer is, and therefore cannot be a good wife to Melissa. But Melissa is desperate to protect her kingdom and sees George as the best solution for the current problem. This goes farther than you would think, unless you've caught on to just how reckless Melissa can be in the name of protecting something or someone that she loves. This is where Melissa's character connects to the original St. George story. 
Obviously, Melissa is the modern version of the princess in the story. If you recall, the legendary princess was wearing a wedding dress when she went out to be sacrificed to the dragon. Melissa does the same. She takes her mother's old wedding dress and soaks it in a poison called belladonna, intending to poison the dragon when it eats her. She does this as a strange and sacrificial compromise, so that George will not be forced to fight the dragon, but also the kingdom would be saved. However, when George begins to figure out this plan, chaos ensues. The queen, who is with George during this revelation, knocks her out and puts her in the infirmary. When George awakens, she tries to escape out the window because it seems that the door is locked, but the king walks in just fine and George is able to be free that way. After the king leaves, George takes a moment at the windowsill, seemingly considering suicide, when Melissa walks in. After they talk, they realize what's really about to happen. Everyone rushes into the courtyard, except for Harriet, who has agreed to lead the last group of evacuees out of the kingdom. The audience sees that the queen, after catching Melissa in the act of poisoning her wedding dress, has taken it upon herself to finish her daughter's plan. The queen is wearing the poisoned dress and has tied herself to a stake to await the dragon. What follows is a conversation that summarizes a lot of what the play as a whole is about. When is sacrifice necessary? How do we forgive ourselves? And how can we choose love instead of violence? In the end, George brings up something that Melissa had mentioned when confessing her love to George at the beginning of the play. When you love someone, you name them. They gather flowers for the dragon, and the queen greets it when it arrives. By the way, this is the only time in my life so far that I have cried at the description of a puppet. <laughs> Anyways, the queen reaches out and says, I name you, and that's where the play ends. Okay, I definitely got a little bit caught up there, but the ending is, in my opinion, what makes this play hit so damn hard. When someone lashes out in fear or in anger, usually what they need is not someone to fight back. It's someone to give them love, forgiveness, and gentleness. George and company beat the dragon in this story, but not with violence, not with bribery, not with fear, but with vulnerability, forgiveness, and an open heart. It's a distinctly matriarchal twist that I feel is desperately needed in our society today. We need more stories like this, whether interpretations of older stories or completely new ones, where there isn't this violent battle between good and evil, but a decision about how we can best show love to the people and things that need it, even when it is hard. Well, that's it for this week's episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed hearing about this play as much as I enjoyed reading it. You can find the full script on New Play Exchange, just like most of the other plays I talk about here. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to contact me with questions about the podcast, suggestions for plays or guests, or just to say hi, you can email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com, no hyphen. You can also follow the podcast at at Playmates Podcast on Instagram. That's no hyphen at Playmates Podcast. 
Finally, please give the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. It helps the podcast to get more amplification. Once again, thank you for listening. I can't wait to see you next week, where we'll be discussing Top Girls by Carol Churchill with my good friend Joanna Eisenberg. Have a safe and fulfilling week, all. Bye for now.